In a land full of legends and mystery, it is easy to see why certain individuals live on in the whispers between the stones. Tucked in between bayous and beignets, between French and Spanish architecture, historic streetcars and impromptu marching bands, lives a literal city of the dead. New Orleans is anything but ordinary, and the way in which they lay their dead to rest is no exception. Aisles of above-ground mausoleums and tombs line the square block of land, creating the feeling of a macabre maze, a maze that houses thousands of people's remains. Today we investigate this graveyard and an individual who has been both memorialized and misunderstood through media, pop culture, and during her life here. Voodoo queen Marie Laveau. Was she really a voodoo queen? Villainous in her intent to exact revenge on those who did her wrong? But why is a queen of this religion buried in a strictly Catholic cemetery? Why are there dozens of other names on her crypt and X's carved in an odd pattern across its facade? Let's walk through the cemetery to see what lies inside. This is Stone's Bones and Shadows. Hi friends and taffophiles, I'm your host, Lachelle, and today we are going to St. Louis Cemetery number one in New Orleans. And my co-host today is my beautiful, smart, fabulous daughter, Randy. Oh wow, I have a lot to live up to today. <laughs> Welcome, Randy. Thank you. So, Miss Randy, you're the one that went to this amazing cemetery. I'm a little jelly because it's definitely on my list. But I was so excited to hear more of the stories there and you had so many great photos. So I'm so excited to talk about this cemetery and about Marie Laveau. This sounds fascinating. So thank you for taking the riding reins on this episode. Yes, thank you so much for letting me. This is something I have thought about talking about since we started this podcast, since you told me about it. Mm -hmm. This is my favorite cemetery that I have been to. Just really, really unique and so many stories that we could talk about there. But Marie Laveau, for sure, is the most popular and kind of most mysterious. Mm -hmm. So... Well, let's dive right in. So walking through the cemetery, it is different than any other cemetery that I think either of us have visited. Mm -hmm. And we'll talk a lot about it, but essentially they're all above ground tombs. Mm -hmm. So very different. It feels like you're kind of walking through a maze. It feels like yeah. almost 
a place that you're walking through instead of looking at, if that makes mm -hmm. sense. All those tiny little buildings, the little right. houses of the dead. <laughs> and they really do seem like a little city. I could totally relate to why, you know, it's colloquially kind of known as the yeah. city of the dead. Exactly. I actually wanted to start off talking a little bit about what cemeteries are like in New Orleans and how their unique burial practices came to be. When New Orleans was settled in 1718, it was a new and inhospitable environment to settlers. This waterlogged land was the perfect grounds for disease to flourish, was thick with difficult to traverse land, and as we know, is prone to hurricanes and other harsh weather patterns. It also proved a challenge to provide adequate drainage and sanitation because most of New Orleans sits at or below sea level. Despite these hardships, settlers flocked to the new colony and the population of New Orleans boomed throughout the 17 and 1800s. With such a dense population in these circumstances, the mortality rate in this time was also very high, and finding a way to bury their dead became a quick and gruesome necessity. The first official public cemetery appears listed on maps in 1725 called St. Peter's Street Cemetery, located across from what is now Jackson Square. This was one of the few places where the water table was higher, and in-ground burials were still being used. Then, in 1788, something we have discussed here before started to happen that brought a swift burial reform. Do you want to take a wild guess as to what that event was? Yeah, pretty sure I know this one. Uh, yellow fever, maybe? <laughs> I mean, really, I'm not trying to bring <laughs> yellow fever into every single episode, but man, I didn't realize how much yellow fever played into our early colonial history. It truly is wild. I, I keep running into it as well in different cemeteries mm -hmm. and in my research and was just like, of course it's yellow fever. <laughs> now it's that, yes. that thing we keep running into. Yellow fever strikes again. I actually learned a lot about this in the cemetery tour we took there. So tell me about what you learned about this time and how it changed burial practices. In short, the yellow fever epidemic was horrific in New Orleans. Mm -hmm. It was one of the worst cities for this. And if I remember right from you and previous mm -hmm. podcasts, it was actually kind of the city that initially started and spread it. Is mm -hmm. that correct? Yes. And because it was a major trade port, those big vessels would come in there and then either people that were sick with the yellow fever would then get bit by mosquitoes and then those mosquitoes would keep passing it, or mosquitoes were actually on board the ship, stowed away, and then they would get out and start biting and Okay, spreading. that's what I remembered as well. So, and then I found that also a bit later because of the steamboat routes, yeah. those were also a major component in the ease of spread of this disease. So with a large population, yellow fever spread quickly. It killed many people in a short amount of time. And even though this was not the largest of the yellow fever outbreaks, those actually happened later in the 19th century, mm -hmm. but it was the first that caused enough death that they needed to find another cemetery to bury their dead. Oh. 
So that initial St. Peter's Street Cemetery essentially was full already. Okay. And this is when they opened St. Louis Cemetery, which is now St. Louis Cemetery number one. There ah. are several St. Louis cemeteries okay. in New Orleans. So this is the first one, which is the one we're talking about today. Okay, awesome. I'm really interested. <laughs> there was just one little problem with this new oh, cemetery. What would that be? This location was not as high above ground as the original cemetery. In uh, fact, it is almost exactly at sea level. Oh. Right, so when they went to bury anyone, the graves would start to fill up with water. In fact, mm, that's a problem. <laughs> it, it's kind of funny because we saw this firsthand when we were there for our tour. We had gotten there, started our tour, walking around, and kind of got caught in a rainstorm. And it was just a good 10 minute or so downpour, followed by some intermittent sunshine and sprinkles, and it was flooded. We were walking in like four oh. or five inches of water through the rest of our tour. <laughs> oh, <laughs> so wow. I could just easily picture how this obviously was a flood zone and it worked out to our advantage because everyone else in the tour bailed. They were like, we're not about this. We don't care enough to be here <laughs> through this uh, rainstorm. We're and not walking Porter and I, the water. <laughs> Porter and I just look at our guide and he's like, well, are you guys okay to continue on? And we're just standing there sopping wet, like dripping wet. Like, what do you mean? And we're just like, oh yeah, yeah. Is there anything wrong? Yeah, what like, we're cool, we're cool, like, let's go. And it, it was great because he I actually gave us an extended tour because it was just oh, the two of us. That and he, is so cool. We just had the greatest time with him. So anyways, I could see how this is easily a flood zone by just that small experience. Anyways, even if the graves were able to be dug, so they started digging, they started burying people in the ground here, the occupants kind of had a difficult time remaining buried. Uh, what? <laughs> right? So they had a hard time keeping the bodies and coffins underground, and they would frequently uh, float back up to the surface. Can you even imagine? Okay, so... No. <laughs> Uh-uh. That's a no. That's a no. Right. Now we know why they invented headstones and, <laughs> you know, the full pieces that go over. Right. And, I mean, this is a whole other tangent, but that is some real zombie vampire <laughs> crap right there. And, I yeah. mean, these poor people, they're dealing with all this disease and death, <sighs> and they can't even figure out a way how to keep their deceased buried. And they really tried. They really tried to come up with solutions. So coffins were often buried with heavy rocks or even oh. with holes drilled in them to try and keep them from floating back to the surface. But these oh, wow. solutions were just not working. So I read the other day that even in modern times, the vault that traditionally the caskets go into now, they say that they're waterproof and watertight and stuff but they actually have drains and stuff as well right because even cement will float if you know there's, there's too much water water yes exactly so they were trying to come up with solutions they just weren't working which brings us to the first above ground graves that were erected in 1804 and mm. by 1818 they were commonplace in new orleans mm. 
And just like the city in which they reside, they reflect a mixture of Spanish, French, and Roman architecture. So think like the Greek and Roman revival mm -hmm. houses and stuff. The tombs are like that too and have many similar they architectural aspects. They do look like aspects. little, in some instances, they're like little mini like mansions. Little mini mansions for the dead. It's, it's true. They vary, you know, in shape and size, but I thought the amazing thing was that these relatively small family tombs, they can fit so many people. They can bury so many people in this one spot because of their innovation. From pictures I've seen, most of the tombs don't look all that much bigger than one, maybe two coffins. And I know that cremation wasn't allowed by the Catholic Church at that time. So how does that work? So this is where the kind of gruesome part comes into play, <laughs> just FYI. <laughs> you know, I asked our guide that exact question. <laughs> yes, you did. Because some of these tombs have dozens of names on them. Wow. So essentially how it works is inside the main tomb, there are two sections, one slot above and one slot below. So essentially there's two vaults like you were describing earlier in each tomb. In the upper chamber, the corpse is laid to decompose. They brick up the front of the tomb and then by tradition are not allowed to remove the brick for one year and one day. Ooh, one year and one day. Why one year and one day? So that was what they deemed sufficient time for decomposition. Mm. And in epidemic times where they thought the dead spread disease, they also believed that was sufficient time for them to no longer be contagious. Okay. But this tradition still is held today in modern times. Okay. After this time has elapsed, the remaining bones are then moved to the bottom of the chamber called the caveau or receiving chamber where they remain at rest. Okay, so then another family member could be decomposing in the upper chamber. Many bones can fit down below in the caveau. Right, exactly. In the little cave in their receiving chamber <laughs> receiving yes. chamber i love it he is now going to the receiving chamber <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's yeah a great euphemism for yeah their bones are in a pile on the ground in, <laughs> in the lower chamber in the cave below right. <laughs> so what you're saying is is there's just a big mixed pile of bones down there like a little bit of grandma, a little bit of great grandpa, etc. Just all kind of mixed up. <laughs> That's, I mean, that feels kind of crazy. We're used to the kind of sterile, you're in your little spot, and right. you're in your little spot. And they're just like, we all one family, <laughs> just throw us all together, it's all good. Exactly. So I, I'm not quite sure how it was then. But from what I read, at least in modern times, they put each individual in a bag. So all of the bones stay together of each person. But our guide had said when this form of burial was more recent, that they would just open it up and push the remains back with a long pole and they would just <laughs> fall down behind underneath and just sort of pile up down there like we're discussing. So okay. funnily enough, he said that that is actually the origin of the phrase, I wouldn't touch that with a 10 foot pole. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> so interesting, right? <laughs> and part of why the pole thing was used was to limit contact with a mm. potentially contagious corpse, okay. as that was still the belief like we discussed. So if it needed to be a year before they could open up the tomb, 
what happened if multiple family members died in that time? I mean, I know that was super common, especially if we're talking yellow fever times. Right, exactly. So they had a solution for that too. Of course. And there are these separate type of tombs called oven tombs that, hmm. well, basically they look like a brick pizza oven, <laughs> hence the name. I mean, I'm sure it wasn't for pizza back then, but they looked like an oven. <laughs> I think of it as well, a pizza. Well, you know, there's not anybody in our pizza oven right now, so we could make a big mix of pizzas before, you know, grandma kicks off. So they're actually built into the brick walls around this cemetery. So when you're walking in, you're surrounded by tombs mm -hmm. as well. And they are only temporary tombs just for the decomposition process that oh. people could rent out. Oh. And then they're moved to the family tomb after they have decomposed. So okay. yeah, tombs for rent. <laughs> <laughs> we, so, need to, we need to write a song about that. I'm sure that we can come uh, up with I'm something. sure. These oven tombs are very simple, only brick, and are not marked except by a number. So if somebody was renting this tomb, they would have a record of, you know, so-and-so is renting tomb number 47. <laughs> and then once they're moved to the family tomb, that one would become vacant and available for the next person. <laughs> and I read that these also sometimes can be used for people that are poor, that do not have a family or a community mm -hmm. tomb. Mm -hmm. And we'll get into community tombs probably in another episode. Mm -hmm. But I have some pictures of all of these that I'll share for the blog and social media to give everyone mm -hmm. a better idea of what they looked like. Right. But I will have you know, I have never looked at a brick oven the same way again, <laughs> especially when they use that long stick to get the pizza out. <laughs> it was too much for me. <laughs> that is just so fascinating. And... I feel like it's so unique compared to so many of the cemeteries I have visited. So now that I can see how and why these burials came to be, let's talk about the famous woman that we've come here to discuss, Marie Laveau. A permanent resident of St. Louis No. 1 lies in a white tomb that she shares with 83 other people. All right. Yes which is part of why I was so intrigued by this. I, mm -hmm. I didn't really know as much about some of the burials, but I'm like, there are a ton of names on this small building and I'll post the yeah. picture, but it's, it's pretty unbelievable to think. Wow, I mean, even that many people reduced to just the bones, it just seems like that still would, I mean, that's a lot in that right. lower area. It turns to dust eventually. I guess it yeah, does. Yeah, it's crazy. Dust to dust. It's adorned with trinkets like hair ties, candles, and flowers. Her tomb is illegally marked with X's and threes. And I can't help but wonder what is the life that brought her to fame and with such odd practices surrounding her burial. She indeed did practice voodoo, but I found it difficult to separate myth from fact to tell her true story. In fact, even the year of her birth is disputed. Right. Many sources say that Marie Laveau was born in 1794, but the official record says 1801. So that's what we're going with. She was a Creole, a person with a mix of French, African, Indian, and or Acadian heritage. She was born in the French Quarter in New Orleans to a wealthy plantation owner 
Charles Laveau, and his mistress named Marguerite. In this time of slavery, Marie was considered very lucky that she had a lighter complexion and was deemed more white than black, and was able to be a free person of color and not have to endure the horrors of slavery. She was cared for by her family and was educated, went to mass regularly and was actually a devout Catholic. At 20 or 25, depending on which birth date we go with, she was married to Jacques Perry in the St. Louis Cathedral that stands still in Jackson Square today. We saw that cathedral and it's beautiful. I'll also post a photo of this but yeah, really gorgeous old cathedral. Oh. And uh, it was really cool to see how much of a place it was to her, but really to the community, you know, it was very important and that central part of their community. Yeah, that is really cool. I love that stuff. She had two children by Jacques. However, the marriage was short-lived when her husband mysteriously disappeared in 1824, just five years later. This is where some of the conspiracy theories start to play in. A mysterious disappearance is more than enough to fuel theories of a secret voodoo queen enacting vengeance. But the fact is, we don't know what happened to Jacques. She began referring to herself as the Widow Perry and kept that moniker even after she had a new partner. So we presume that at the very least, she believed he was dead. Another theory is simply that Jacques had abandoned his family and it was easier to accept that he was dead rather than he had just chosen to leave. Right, and in those days too, I feel it would have been really easy to just pick up and start a new life somewhere. Like, didn't want yeah. to have the responsibilities of a family, pick up your stuff, move to another city. Hi, I am John. <laughs> and you yeah. know, there's no social security, My no name credit. Is Jack Paris, and now <laughs> I'm a whole new person. Yeah, no right. social security number, no child support. And I feel wow. like for her, it probably would have just been easier to... He died. He died. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he did. <laughs> <laughs> he did. And there's so many records in the story that have been destroyed over the years that people love to just simply fill in the blanks with what fits their story. Right. We know at this time, Marie entered into a common law marriage with, and I'll try my best with this, Christophe Dominic Dumini de Glapion. <laughs> yes, I think you did beautifully. <laughs> a French nobleman and had at least seven, but as many as 15 children with him. Whoa, I mean, that's quite the range. Like, how do you not know? There are only official birth and baptismal records of seven and the two from the first marriage, but other sources indicate that 15 may also include grandchildren or adoptive children that lived with her. Right, so I mean, if there was just not an official birth record or baptismal record, if they didn't mm -hmm. all get baptized, it yeah. was almost just as if they didn't exist. Yeah. And something that I had found out as well is that the children from the first marriage, that's the only record they have of them is just those two birth records. And it's like they disappeared, oh. never to be seen in the record again. Mm -hmm. So yeah. there's just simply a lot that we don't really know about her family and what mm -hmm. happened. And in New Orleans, there were many, many fires in the early days. Mm. And 
tons of records were destroyed in fires over decades. So, yeah. Sadly, only two of these children lived to adulthood, which I know I say this a lot we find on this podcast, but yeah. it's just so sad how many children in a family would pass and I mean, 15, even if they are adoptive children just, or, you wow. know, people she took in from the street, 15 yeah. and two. Two. Two live to adulthood. She lived with Christoph until his death in 1855. Throughout this time, Marie began to work some odd jobs here and there to provide for her family. It is thought that she had studied to be a hairdresser and she began doing this along with some nursing. She was very involved in helping the sick, poor, incarcerated, and downtrodden. So how did she become not only revered, but feared? Well, it actually ties somewhat back to the hairdressing. In this career, she tried to get clients that were of high status and were white or wealthy. Not only did that make her pretty good money, it is actually thought to be the root of some of her fame in New Orleans. So she's like a celebrity hairdresser? (laughs) That's awesome. (laughs) You'd think, but it actually gave her hidden fuel. Around this time, Marie began to be interested in her mother's African culture, which included the practice of the religion voodoo. For already many practicing in New Orleans, given the melting pot of cultures that were there, but Marie was the first one to really bring voodoo out of the shadows and prominently rooted in the culture of New Orleans today. Now remember, she's still a devout Catholic. So she began to use both elements of her Catholic faith and elements of her African heritage. For example, she would make a shrine for certain Catholic saints and make offerings to them in a traditionally voodoo ceremony. Some historians think she may have combined elements of the two religions to make voodoo more palatable in those times, or some think she just simply believed in aspects of both which makes sense to me. Makes sense, right. She comes from both. I mean, her Mm -hmm. mother had her culture, but she was raised in the church. She used her practices and made a living performing rituals, acting as an oracle, making tonics, potions, and selling gri-gri, or small bags of herbs and such, meant to help with the luck or with certain ailments. She was a talented herbalist, and her cures were sought after. Oh yeah, they actually still sell handmade grigri all over New Orleans. Mm. I actually brought one back for my friend who's very into voodoo. <laughs> Taryn, if you're listening. We love you, Taryn. <laughs> we love you. <laughs> and it was, yeah, all very, very interesting. So how does all of that tie into the hairdressing though? I know hairdressers work some magic, but <laughs> I didn't know it was actually voodoo. <laughs> Her clients came in and said, hey, Maria, could you work me some magic? <laughs> I need a real <laughs> makeover here. Like, I need to be a whole new person. <laughs> and I need my husband to be a whole new person. <laughs> well, it doesn't tie into voodoo directly at all, but essentially she put herself in the room with wealthy, influential people of New Orleans 
She listened to their conversations while working, as all hairdressers do. Right. She listened to all the gossip the women had shared. She listened to all the personal details that were discussed. And she logged those details away in her memory. And even though she was a free person of color, she was still a black woman in these people's eyes. Right. So they paid her no mind, no worrying about her being a part of their conversation because she was a woman below them. Or so they thought. Or, <laughs> you know. But Marie, she knew this information had power. So it is thought that later on, when she would do readings, when she wanted something done, if she wanted to appear more powerful, she could recall these details and conversations about people and use them to her advantage. Makes so much sense. She sounds like a smart lady to me. I agree. She developed an elaborate network of informants and friends. I love her so much. <laughs> to help provide her with community ties and information. It was said that businessmen and women would consult her before important decisions. And I feel she must have known a lot about politics and ongoing trends in the city to help give them advice. I agree. I mean, as a former hairdresser in a previous life, well, in this life, we have, we have to clarify on this podcast, <laughs> but as a former hairdresser, I mean, people tell you things that you have really no business knowing. You know, they'll be your first time client sit in your chair and tell you all about their crazy divorce or their history of abuse, all these things. And you're just like, so would you like an inch off the bottom or do you want layers today? And right. And I mean, part of is why hairdressers love what they do because you can connect to your clients. But mm -hmm. there are definitely situations where I know so many details about this person. Yeah, and they don't really know anything about me, <laughs> you know? Yeah. So otherworldly advice? I'm not quite so sure if it was otherworldly or from spirits, but I do think she was a very intelligent woman. Oh, she was. And I think that people of those times that owned slaves, they were just used to this idea of they could just talk about whatever because... They were less than, they were no one, and what did it matter if they knew? Exactly, right. And she was a free woman of color. She was an educated woman mm -hmm. of color. She could do something about it if she wanted. Yeah. And I really think that she was so smart to almost kind of play that part. Like, I know nothing until yeah. all of a sudden yeah. they needed something from her. Yeah. So I do have cool. a question. We hear all of this talk about her being a voodoo queen. What exactly does that mean? What does that entail? And I'm not sure if you've ever seen American Horror Story, but I know mm -hmm. a lot of our listeners will be thinking of her portrayal there, which is a very kind of evil like witch, essentially. Do you think that is an accurate representation of what her practice was like? That's a good point because a lot of people associate voodoo with evil curses, causing pain, voodoo dolls, poking pins in. Right. And indeed, many feared her in association with a non-Christian religion that many did not understand. 
But as we discussed some earlier, Marie was documented more frequently as a humanitarian. She nursed the sick during the worst of yellow fever, fed the hungry, adopted children, visited prisoners on death row, and even allowed those who did not have a place to rest to be interred in her family tomb. Part of why there are so many names on the epitaph. See, that makes so much sense. That makes more sense to me, is she's a woman of the community. But to answer your question, being a voodoo queen entailed essentially being the head priestess and administrator of the religion. She held the utmost power and respect to those practicing the religion. But many in the community feared this role and of what she could do if one should cross her. She was even sometimes referred to in newspaper articles as a hag or a witch. To the general public, voodoo was fascinating, but also feared and hated. Like many things from different cultures, voodoo became sensationalized in papers and media, became demonized for the misunderstanding of rituals to be something evil or of the devil, when really voodoo means spirit. And they were simply trying to connect with the deity or their ancestors. Sure, right, that makes sense to me. I learned that although voodoo practices can be used to inflict harm, they're more often used to ask for help, luck, healing, protection, etc., from deities and spirits from beyond. It is not all about stabbing a needle into the voodoo doll of your enemy. Louisiana voodoo was heavily influenced by the already present African cultures there. Right, so when they pulled the slaves over, that is what they had been practicing was essentially mm. a form of voodoo yeah. in Africa. So, I mean, they're practicing it there already, but they're having to practice it really in secret mm -hmm. from what I understand mostly. The underground. And underground. And um, even if we have time for a little tangent on <laughs> voodoo dolls. Yeah. Essentially, the slaves used to actually carve figurines. They went by a different name. But if they were caught with any of these artifacts from their religion, they would be harmed or killed even. Oh, so yeah. they started making these figurines ragdolls because they were easier to explain away and to conceal. And that mm. is where the voodoo doll came from. But voodoo dolls also can be used to bring healing energy to a certain part of the body or whatever person this is representing. So I thought that was really interesting. That melting pot that New Orleans has actually has a very specific type of voodoo, which is what is called Louisiana voodoo, because there was a couple of different African-based cultures all in one place, plus the heavy Catholic side of things that Marie Laveau brought into it. So yeah, Louisiana voodoo was heavily influenced by the already present African cultures there, but even more so by Haitian refugees who fled to the U.S. in the early 1800s, around the time of the Haitian Revolution and Louisiana Purchase. They had a saying that I feel sums up voodoo well. Everything is poison and nothing is poison. Essentially, anything can be used for good or anything used incorrectly can be used for bad. 
I liked that and felt that it shows how voodoo is more than what it is often made out to be. Right, no, I really like that and it, and it makes sense. Honestly, we've seen it throughout history with paganism, with colonization and like uh, Native American cultures and religions that, especially religions that connect to spirits, you know, it's just not really understood by a lot of monotheistic religions. And it makes people uncomfortable to think of spirits right, or the dead. And we still see that. It, it was just very feared and thought of as inherently evil because anything that wasn't this exact way must not be, be right good. Or right. from God. Yeah. Right. So there's that whole piece of it just in the culture and in times of slavery. But I also feel that simply because of that, and because Marie was a woman, mm -hmm. a person of color with status, mm -hmm. that alone would be scary to people in that time. Mm -hmm. They would be threatened by that. Yes, I agree. So what do we think? Was her power and status something to be feared? I came across one story while watching a History Channel documentary about her that I just loved and thought it displayed how these two ideas of humanitarian and all-powerful priestess could simultaneously exist. In 1852, Marie was seen visiting several prisoners that were set to be executed for their crimes by public hanging. She frequently visited prisoners and tended to them as she was very empathetic and felt that many of them were there unjustly or were suffering needlessly before they were executed. However, on the day that these prisoners were scheduled to be hanged, menacing storm clouds rolled in, thunder, lightning, and rain swept over the courtyard. The wind whipped up, and according to this documentary, it was quoted that the nooses slipped from their necks as if by magic, saving their lives. How cool is that? I know. <laughs> because of the strange mishap, Louisiana actually stopped the practice of public executions, and that was the last attempted public execution on record. So Marie was wow. just like, look, this is ridiculous. <laughs> I'm going to call in this storm. Or either it was that or a wonderful coincidence, but it scared them enough to They're be like, oh, Marie's here. <laughs> Look what she did! I saw her talking to these prisoners multiple times. <laughs> yeah. You know, she yeah. must have had something to do with this. She had empathy for them. She wanted them to get out. Do you think that Marie had something to do with this? Or was it all a big coincidence? Well, I mean, I definitely believe there are bigger forces out there that I don't understand. Mm -hmm. So I'm not going to say it's not possible. What about you? <laughs> Yeah, I don't know. I tend to think it probably was just a storm. <laughs> right. <laughs> probably was just one of those crazy coincidences. Look, I visited Marie's grave. I don't want her to haunt me, so I'm going to I'm going <laughs> to stay on her good sides here and say it was all it you. Was all Marie lady. <laughs> good job. <laughs> now there are also other anecdotes and accounts that said what happened to people after they got on Marie's bad side. An unfortunate illness or injury. And maybe that's related, but also in the early to mid-1800s, <laughs> we know people got ill and injured a lot. So, <laughs> Yeah, I mean, you could get a paper cut back in those days and 
infection and, and completely die. die from a tiny wound. I did think though she was a talented herbalist. So, you yeah. know, there are poisonous plants and spices yeah. and things. Maybe there is something to that, but. You know what? Let's be honest. All over the world, women who were talented herbalists were considered as witches. witches. Yes. So many times. And I'm thinking, that just seems so strange that they couldn't wrap their heads around, look, she is amazing with gathering the right plants and they have these, you know, unique properties that can help heal our bodies, but they just weren't they there just yet. They couldn't understand it and just anything that they couldn't understand dismissed it away right. as demonology, evil, powerful, power that we don't understand. Mm -hmm. Must be a witch. Right. Marie Laveau continued her work until at least 1875 when she announced she was retiring. Yet as someone who really loved what she did, it was said that she still administered to the sick and gave readings in her home until her death in 1881. She passed quietly and peacefully at home at the old age of 81 years old. And back then that was, that was really old. old. She was interred at the Paris Glapion family tomb located in St. Louis Cemetery, number one, and is a white plaster Greek revival tomb with a marble epitaph. Her tomb is the most visited grave in New Orleans and attracts thousands of visitors every year and is still visited by those who practice voodoo as well. So Randy, since you were able to see her tomb, can you describe for us a little bit of what it is like now and anything else you'd like to share about that. Yeah, absolutely. I have some pictures of this, like I said, I'll definitely share, but there were a few things that struck me initially. One, it's a relatively simple tomb. Mm -hmm. If it weren't for its fame and just a very small bronze plate mm -hmm. that says her name, you wouldn't really stop and look twice at this tomb, I don't okay. feel. Relatively simple, just white with marble. I was intrigued by all of the extras that people leave. There were flowers, cards, hair ties, which I thought was weird then, but hair now ties. probably offered because she was a hairdresser. Oh. So, you know, that makes sense now to oh, me. There you go. Yeah, all of these little trinkets were there. And our guide told us that they clean up and remove these all the time, but people always and probably will always keep leaving things. The most intriguing thing is there is a phenomenon of people carving three X's on the tomb, which yeah, we've kind of alluded about? to. Supposedly, it is a ritual that Marie can still grant you a favor. You carve three X's, spit in three opposite directions while turning three times, knock on her tomb three times, speak your wish, and leave an offering. But to me, it's kind of sad because yeah. it's defacing the grave. It's illegal. Yeah. And I took actually a virtual voodoo tour recently from one of the companies we used while there. Mm -hmm. And the guide is a practicing voodoo priest. Mm. And he said that offerings and the X's and the number three is a sacred number in voodoo as well. But the turning and the spitting and the knocking is not a thing. This is just oh. a rumor. Essentially, gotcha. some kind of the same thing as like Bloody Mary and whatever you know, and turning right. around in the bathroom and 
think that you're going to call. Right. Know, so it's just kind of a, a touristy type of rumor that spread like wildfire. Gotcha. And Marie is also not considered a deity. So it's kind of odd because in theory and true practicing voodoo, oh, yeah. she doesn't really even necessarily have that power right. to... She would have to be at least your ancestor, right? Right, yes. So it's a, hmm. it's a little odd. But furthermore, along with that, the popularity of the grave, it's actually caused a major shift in the availability to see St. Louis number one to the public. Oh. Random guides early on were giving out markers and instructions on how to oh. do this ritual really? and grant this oh. favor. A group of vandals tried to exhume her body late at night in 1982. Oh. And again, bones and stuff are used in voodoo practices, so they think mm. maybe that was part of it. Part of the allure was using her bones. Oh. They, they weren't successful and they were all arrested in 1982. But the final straw came in December of 2013 when her grave was vandalized by a person still unknown who painted the entire thing pink. Okay. Right. And you'd think, okay, this would probably be easy enough to paint over or remove. However, he used a latex paint that locks in moisture and eventually would eat away and completely destroy the plaster and brick. Oh no. So it was really bad. It was a very bad case of vandalism. And the cost of the repairs cost upwards of $10,000 to oh. remove the paint and restore the tomb. And it still was highly criticized because before they really realized what they were doing, part of it was pressure washed to get the paint off and did permanently damage some of the underlying brick. Oh, that's just so sad. Isn't that so sad? Just and it's just so leave dumb. Leave in peace. Leave them it's in It's like, why peace. pink? Like, why did you feel the need to yeah. do something so random? If she wanted random? a pink tomb, she would have painted it had pink, a pink, pink before tomb. she died. <laughs> it was there a long time. So soon after this incident, the archdiocese decided the cemetery would no longer be open to the public and would require a licensed and certified guide to take you in. The cemetery now has strict hours and is kept under 24-hour surveillance. All right, so that's why you had to have a guide through all of the cemeteries that you went I to I did, there. yeah. One, and not all the cemeteries are like that there, okay. so some of them you still can just walk okay. through. So this but one, this one sure. in particular, because really because of Marie Laveau, and her popularity and it draws so many visitors they sense. just they shut it down it. they can't leave it open there's there's too many instances of vandals people stealing bones people you know marking the graves with these dumb rituals just overall just disrespecting the dead i'm sorry the things people will do <laughs> i mean all the time i see headstones and graves that have been demolished or painted or hit with things or right and it's like it doesn't matter how you feel about this person or their family or any of that it just is so it just feels really wrong oh to me it is just like i just it makes me get yucky shivers because yeah. i'm like to disrespect the dead like that i just think is one of the worst things that people can do and there's but. been such a problem with this cemetery and all of that, they actually still 
check your bags when you're leaving to make sure you're not <gasps> smuggling bones out. Holy crap. Yeah. I, wow. Yep. Oh, and I think part uh -uh. of it is the above ground thing, right? The families that are in charge The bones are of, not that far away They're from not you. that far away. And some of these graves are not in the greatest condition. Mm. Their families, if they're still alive, aren't keeping it up or whatever. And there are parts where there's just exposed brick and you can totally see inside. So mm. I think it's just that ease of availability and oh, people are just, mm. I mean, never, never. That just makes me <laughs> just like, <laughs> like, you want a curse? Cause that's how you get a curse. <laughs> that's exactly, I'm like, huh? oh, uh-uh. Mm -mm. Yeah, one of the final things I found interesting is there is a rumor that this isn't actually Marie's tomb at all. Oh. And that they wouldn't allow a practicing voodoo queen to be buried in a Catholic cemetery. So the rumor is that her grave is somewhere known only to her family and descendants and would be more consistent with voodoo traditions. Did you find anything about that in your research? Everything that I found was that all of the records with the archdiocese is consistent with her death and burial in St. Louis number one. She was still Catholic too and still went to mass throughout her life. So I feel that she was most likely buried right where we think she is. That's what I thought too. The rest of her family and children are buried there. And regardless of how people felt about her, she was a pillar in the community, was married to a wealthy white French nobleman. Mm. And that was his family's tomb. It's the Glavion tomb. Oh, yeah. So I, I feel that they really weren't going to try to deny her being, and to just be buried in the backwoods. But the rumor is that she secretly had requested to be buried somewhere else. That's kind of crazy to think about. So a lot of the things I read, a lot of the sources said her alleged tomb. <laughs> oh, yeah, well, who knows? What do you think? Which side does she land on? To me, I think she was a very intelligent woman. Mm -hmm. I think she was way ahead of her time in a lot of things. Mm -hmm. And I really feel that she was deeply compassionate. Everything right. that we've talked about just led to all these stories of her nursing the sick through yellow fever. We mm -hmm. know the most how scary awful, and awful that was. Thing. She was an older woman in those times too, in some of these outbreaks and she was nursing yeah. the sick and she adopted many, many children. And I just felt like she, was a deeply religious person and just a very open person. So it wasn't necessarily tied to one religion or the other, but just very open to spirituality is how I would. And can someone that has that much love and empathy for her fellow man also be a hateful voodoo practicer to that cause harm, cur cursing people? And I, I don't, don't think so, but I do feel like she has just enough spunk that playing tricks on people that were giving her problems <laughs> and making them maybe believe that she had oh, something she... to do with unfortunate trip down the stairs or something. I mean, I could come see on. that. We've all had times <laughs> in our life. We wish that we could pretend that we had powers and be like, oh yeah, you see this little bag of stuff? Well, you better watch your back. You better watch it. Just <laughs> you know planting I mean? that seed. Exactly. And with everything with her, I mean, knowledge and information was key. 
So mm-hmm. using that to just plant that little seed in their brain and like of she's information. Somehow knew this thing. Yes, or somehow knew something was because going she's in to happen tune with soon. The spirits. Or... Uh, I think that was really mm-hmm. where her true power lied. It's fascinating. I love talking about this. I think this was such a interesting topic and I'm dying to, I always say this, I'm dying to do this. <laughs> when it refers to a cemetery, I don't know, I don't know why that is the thing I say. I'm really looking forward to the time that I can go to New Orleans and maybe you'll want to go back with me. Oh yeah, I have wanted to go back since, since my you trip were there. there. It just really spoke to me in many ways and it is, it's gritty, it's not all just pretty and floats and Mardi Gras festivals, but it had real culture and history mm-hmm. and you could just feel it in mm-hmm. the streets and in the air and everything there just had this little hint of mystery and of history too, to me. So it's yeah, we'll be back. And oh, we could have taken numerous tombs just in this one cemetery and done a whole episode about them and even a deeper dive into some of Marie's practices. But there's just, there's so much to talk about. There is. We'll come back with some more stories. I say that about every cemetery because there's always more. There is always more. We'll be doing this podcast till the end of time. (laughs) (laughs) You'll be like Marie and say, I'm retired. And then still 90 years old talking about it. Now, just a little teaser for our listeners. We're going to be coming back to New Orleans in October. We're going to have a month long with Randy and Taylor and I of spooky stories and some of the most haunted places that we have been or that are supposedly the most haunted or spooky places in the world. We're going to have so much fun for Halloween month. I am so excited for October. I'm always <laughs> excited for October. One of my favorite months of the year. But this October is going to be awesome. I'm super exactly. stoked. So stay tuned. Thanks, Randy. Thank you. There is a lot we do not know about Marie Laveau. As for me, I choose to believe she was a deeply connected and spiritual woman who cared deeply and yearned for a bigger connection to our fellow humans as well as guiding deities and spirits. Was she powerful? Absolutely. Look at the discussions she still creates to this day. Marie Laveau created a legacy that will live on as long as we continue to speak her name. Whether she could tell the future, exact vengeance, or call down a rainstorm to save a life, that I will let you decide for yourselves. Until next time, This is Stones, Bones, and Shadows. You can see photos and more information about the cemeteries we explore and find our sources at stonesbonesandshadowspodcast.com. Also, don't forget to check us out on Facebook, like us on Instagram, follow us on Twitter, and leave us a comment. We love to hear from our listeners.
Yeah.